Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. It's funny to hear other people's opinion of what they think fighting fraud in e-commerce is. I've talked to a few vendors who kind of assume because they understand how important fraud prevention is to a company's bottom line, as well as to ensuring trust with customers and trust equals dollars and all of that. I think a lot of them assume that those of us that have been on the merchant side are thought of within our company. And many people are, but there sometimes is this perception that if we walk into the office, when we would walk in the office, we'd walk in and we'd be donned with a superhero cape and we'd get whatever resources we needed because the whole business and organization understood how important it was. And that if nobody's guarding the front gate or looking at how stolen data is being monetized on your system, things can get out of control. Huge revenue losses as well as impacts to current customers and just all those things. So sometimes the outside perspective is everyone understands the value. And so therefore, if we ask, oh, we need this extra tool. Oh, Yes, it will be granted with magic wand and the whole thing. And I don't think every salesperson or vendor thinks that, but that definitely sometimes, especially in conversations with people who are fairly new to selling and fraud prevention, that is what they think. I agree. That is how things should be in my perfect world. But if you are a practitioner on the merchant side for a marketplace or for a fintech, you probably just rolled your eyes and laughed for the last two minutes. I know for me, I felt like it was a thankless job often, one that wasn't understood, and I wasn't good at explaining it either. The skills for fraud fighting came very naturally to me and they were inherent to me because of my personality and the way my brain works. And I think that's the case for a lot of people that are on the front lines as fraud fighters. But I wasn't the best communicator to other people to explain to them why and A big part of that is because I didn't understand e-commerce. I didn't understand the bigger business. I didn't understand how we fit and what impact we had on other departments in a positive way and how to talk about it. Over the last ever teen years I'm at, I've learned that skill because I've had to, especially as a consultant. I talk to a lot of people who know fraud in the way that we might know fraud, but need their chargeback problem fixed or they need this or that, but they don't want you to touch sales and and there's a lot of fear there. And so I've learned how to have those conversations better and say, okay, yes, we can do that, but here's the risk. Or here is how we'll actually improve your customer experience while reducing chargebacks and fraud. And it's not just one thing, right? It's not, oh my goodness, I can't think of the word, but it's not just one thing, right? And so it's they connect with each other and they're all important. And so that was what Robert and I wanted to talk about today was actually how we wish we would have been better at communicating with our teams. I'll say that for myself. 
Robert actually did a really good job of sharing some of the things that he found to be like critically important to be in communication with his manager. And then oftentimes his manager would bring that up the chain or whatever it was. And so we talk about some of those core metrics that you should just know inside and out and have it rehearsed in your head of how to explain it to anyone in the business. We're losing this much. This is how much we usually do. Like he'll go into all the details. But we also talk more about just making a business case, whether it's for new technology or for doing something different, new processes, adding a new resource, etc. Or when the business and or I should say when the business comes to you and says, hey, we're going to add a new business line of business or a new business model, or we're going to start selling new products or something different, right? We're going to change the code on the website so that we're not asking for everything that we usually ask for or whatever that is. And anyone who's been on the front lines and the merchant side knows that you're lucky if you hear about it ahead of time. Sometimes the surprise sale is not just a surprise to customers. It's also a surprise to the fraud department. But hopefully you're learning about that ahead of time. And sometimes we just want to say no. But Robert has some really, a really good example that I remember from that time of when something was proposed within his company when he worked at StubHub. And it, it made sense to other people not in fraud, but his fraud intuition was going, no, it's going to get worse. But instead of saying no, he found a way to compromise and demonstrate how important he and his team were to the company and how, oh, we didn't realize how everything fits. OK, next time we need to ask the fraud department earlier. So these are all things we talked about today, and I heard from several of you that it was kind of cathartic to listen to us talk last week about just kind of what's going on in the industry and all of that. And today we wanted to give a little bit more actionable advice based on some of the questions that I receive regularly, as well as a couple of the questions that came through LinkedIn when I asked for those in advance of talking with Robert. The last thing we talk about is around really creating that business case for your fraud team. There's a lot of concern within management that we're not paying our analysts enough or we aren't paying them as much as another company would. And I've trained them and this is not an easy position to fill really quickly. So being able to explain all of that. And I know that there are issues because HR often just tries to look for a pay band based on geography and other factors. And those exist for other industries, but they don't necessarily exist for fraud. And we're not cybersecurity, but we're not customer service. And so we had a really good conversation about that as well. And I know that that weighs on the minds of a lot of people managers. Robert was one of the is one of the best people managers I know, even though he doesn't have a team now and he's exploring creating a new project. He's working on a new project, but he's also using some great startups on growth and building teams and leading those, not just in fraud prevention or on the vendor merchant side, but both. And I just really respect and appreciate his perspective and his wisdom on all things, but especially when it comes to people management and hiring and all that, because I know the people that he hired and they were rock stars and he gave them as much support as they needed, but also as much autonomy as they deserved. And that's something I've always wanted to emulate as a people manager as well. So I know that you're going to learn a lot today from our conversation. I'm going to let you do that now. 
But if you enjoy this episode, please and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can connect with Robert on LinkedIn if you aren't already. I will always include his our link to his LinkedIn profile in the show notes that he's on. I do that for all the guests. With that, I'll let you listen in on this conversation with Robert. And I cannot wait to hear what you think about it. Last week, it's such a good conversation with my friend Robert Caps that Robert, I'm grateful that you agreed to come back this week and kind of finish up that conversation on more of a high note. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> we kind of ran out of time last time. It was like, whoa, this is a downer episode. No, I think it wasn't a it wasn't a bad note, but yeah, you're right. There, there, there's some positive things to talk about here. Things about getting out in front of the issues and, and sort of understanding your business, how to communicate your business metrics to senior executives. That's super important for folks who are listening to build that muscle, to build that capability. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people do it well, but I've seen probably the majority of our industry and myself included when I was in management on the merchant side. I learned a lot during that time. And I think towards the end, I was getting better. But it can be easy for those of us who rely on data to kind of know, we know what's true and we know what's good or bad. So we live and die by that. But we kind of forget that other people don't understand it in the same way we do. And sometimes it comes across as we're chicken littles, right? When they yeah. want to do something new or anything. And we're just like, no. Let me put it a different way that I think people may resonate a little bit better. If you're in fraud and you're really good at this, your intuition is fantastic. You can really look at a point. set of data and go, oh, there's something in there. I know it's wrong. Yeah. You need to intimately know that adding a feature, removing a feature from the website or putting a new product out there you know how that's going to be impact the business. You know, it's going to impact your own organization. Can you communicate that in a way that the business folks, your manager, their mm -hmm. manager, CEO, C-suite can understand and put into their own business metrics? And that's the hard part, right? You're in this position because you're good at finding bad things. Mm -hmm. um, now how do you communicate that in a productive way? to executives who can take that into their decision-making process, right? Most of these folks, given the right information, in the right way will make different decisions than the one they've made. Yes. Maybe they won't. Maybe there's something you don't know about the business, the environment of the business or where they're taking the business. And sometimes that's just the way it is. Those at the top are ultimately responsible for the performance of the business and they've got to make decisions. Sometimes everyone won't agree with them. That's just yeah. the sad part. But help your case. You're proactively communicating. You're participating. You're letting them understand why, not just the resulting concern. Yeah, I think that was spot on that it is the case of that we have this intuition. Our intuition isn't always right. I mean, I'll be honest, there were times when I would fight to the, not to the death, but I would really like, <laughs> no, this cannot happen. And then it would happen. And I'd be like, oh, okay, oh, it yeah. wasn't as bad as I thought. But then there were other times where I knew it would be bad and it was. So I think it can be broken up into two different things. One is kind of that daily day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month strategy of building up a feedback loop with mm -hmm. leadership and yeah. kind of training, not training, but helping other areas of the business as well as executives. And that's who you're talking to very much depends on the size of your organization. When I worked for a startup, I was talking with the C-suite very regularly. When I worked for a very large online travel agency, I was talking to my boss. He was talking to his boss and then a few layers up 
to the CEO eventually would get a little bit of what I had communicated. And I think, you know, it's always important to know like the higher up they are kind of the more you have to simplify things. And I think that's something I also struggled with because I feel like the details are what matters. And it's so important. As you said, the people at the top are the ones responsible for the business. They can't know all the details. They don't need to. They need to know they can trust you. They need to know that you understand business, not just fraud. And they need to know, okay, what do I need to know to make this next decision? So I think taking that on first, and then we'll talk a little bit later about when those cases do come up where, Mm -hmm. oh, we're going to add this thing or we're going to change this feature or we're going to do this. And maybe you're told ahead of time, maybe you're not. And and so (laughs) we'll surprise. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when those holiday sales are also a surprise to the fraud department, that was one of the little miss memes I did on LinkedIn last week. And it was so (laughs) true. I had some good help with that. But so anyway, I'd love to hear from you kind of when you were at SubHub, as well as you've worked with merchants for so long, the last several mm-hmm. years, you've had that view similar to me where we see people who do it well, we see people who maybe don't, and then we see the outcome, right? We mm-hmm. see those that do it well often have autonomy and can often communicate with their boss. And often if they say they need to do technology, that goes a lot longer way than people who often are feeling like there's everyone speaking a different language and nobody understands fraud and they don't understand why it's important. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of this us versus them mentality inside the company. So what are some things that that you think all people who are leading fraud or managing fraud or in charge of kind of overseeing the fraud strategy, like what should they be doing on a regular basis with their leadership just to kind of keep that relationship or at least that those communication lines open? Yeah. First and foremost, they should at least have their own management in the loop. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Having the basics when it comes to metrics about your organization, about the operations of your organization, the performance, those sort of things. So what are your fraud impacts? How many transactions that are coming through the front door convert into an actual loss for the organization? Have a number. At minimum, what is the dollar impact? So we had 400,000 transactions. We had 10,000 bad transactions and they were a million dollars of loss over those 10,000 transactions. Huge metrics, right? This is the problem space. This is the scope. We haven't even talked about customer impact if you get into like marketplaces where you got buyers and sellers that yeah. are transacting with each other, just bare minimum. What is our bottom line loss? What are the number of bad transactions? What's the total transaction? Because then you can start doing some really cool math. If you divide the good transactions by the good volume, you get an average price of order, right? Might Mm -hmm. be $100, right? Let's just play around numbers. If you do the same transaction for the total volume of fraud and the number of fraudulent transactions, I bet you that number is higher than the average price. If they're going to commit fraud, they're usually going to commit it for as much money as they can get out of your system. So those average tickets, those average sales transactions are going to be higher than your traditional sales. And Mm -hmm. so another cool metric that you can use is how many good sales does it take to offset Mm. the loss of a bad one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? So you've got to get some other business metrics into play. Profit margin. You have to understand profit margins and things like that. And we're getting sort of advanced baseball at this point. 
just understanding the basics of how a good transaction differs from a bad transaction when we talk about bottom line, right? Because if your your gross margins for a good transaction are say 20%, your costs are in the 80% range. So when you have a fraud loss, that's 80% loss to the bottom line. Yep. <laughs> well, so, and you haven't even calculated in chargeback fees and nothing, interchange just, just transactions. and yeah. All of the other impacts. I mean, in years past, I have relied on the LexisNexis True Cost of Fraud Multiplier. I know right now this year it's $3.75. So they say for every $1 in fraud, it's $3.75 to the business. However, just read through the new report this past weekend and I have a lot of questions. I need to reach out to the people who did the survey. So I just, I don't, I usually would love to share what all of that entails and I don't know yet. But that is one option or you can go do your own, right? Cost of resources, cost of fraud technology, cost of everything that goes into that sale, cost of shipping if you have physical items. And then to your point earlier, the customer impact. And I think Mm -hmm. knowing the bigger impact on customers and knowing the bigger impact on the company and the brand is important too. But just to clarify on on this part, you're saying, I mean, of course, someone in fraud would say, yeah, I know that. But I mean, you're saying that's the bottom line of starting to educate leadership on that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Having those metrics in a cogent form and being able to provide them to anyone who asks, anyone who wants to listen, right? You know, in a lot of organizations, you have a one-on-one with your manager. Make sure your manager knows in each one of those one-on-ones where they stand, where Mm -hmm. is the organization when it comes to just raw loss and impact. You know, we start talking about the cost difference between a good transaction and a banned transaction. That's advanced. But the bare minimum is, what are we losing right now? If we do nothing else, if we stay exactly where we're at, mm-hmm. we're going to leave how much money on the table, right? That we could recover in other ways. The next metric that you should probably be taking a look at is, what are you doing to prevent? How many transactions were stopped by your program? by your organization, by the systems you run, by the people that you have, the processes in place, how many transactions do you catch, right? So now we've got total number of transactions that were good. We've got total number of transactions that were bad and total number of transactions that you caught that would have been bad. And you got a, a number of transactions and you got a dollar value associated with that. Now, when you have those three, you have some really interesting data points to be able to build really rough business cases off of. So you know what the value of a good transaction is. We know what the value of a bad loss transaction is. We know what of the value of a transaction that was bad, that was prevented is. Now we can look at how many analysts do you have? What are your fraud tools costs? What are the operational costs for your group? And you can start to assign a cost avoidance number. You know, mm. So if you spent $100,000 on all of your staff and all of these are just numbers coming off the top of right. my head, don't. <laughs> right, <laughs> this so is not from a right. scientific study or anything else. <laughs> but if the cost to operate your organization within the business, the loss prevention side is $100,000 a year and you stop 100,000 bad transactions, it costs you a buck to stop a bad transaction. Right. And we start looking at the cost of a good transaction, the cost of a bad transaction that gets through. You can start to do some really interesting back of the envelope math as to there's a use case for adding 10% of the budget. Right. If you Mm -hmm. can add 10% of the budget, you can get, say, a 5x multiplier on that as a return. That's money back in the pocket of the company. And then, then usually when I looked at when I looked at a business case, I usually wanted to get a five time return. 
was mm-hmm. going to put a dollar in, I wanted to get a $5 return minimum on whatever that investment is. So if I was going to spend $100,000 on a new tool a year, I wanted to get at least $500,000 in savings to the business. Either there's stopped fraud or higher profitability, whatever it happened to be. I wanted that impact to be at least 5x. And that's the time when you start to see that sort of return on an investment is sort of the minimum where an executive is going to go, huh, okay, I can see where that might be useful. So Mm -hmm. let's think about what it's going to cost to do that or how we can fit it into our prioritization. Or do we have other things that we want to do right now that would return 10x? Right. Right. And so just because you walk in with a business case does not mean that there aren't other business cases that are more compelling. <laughs> yeah. But, and that's hard for some of us. Right. But yeah, this is yeah, important. Yeah. And it is. So are the other but, 10 things on my desk. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And I think asking your manager in those one ones, what are the business priorities right now? What are the, you know, that's wanting to align yeah. with that, asking them questions as mm-hmm. far as are we trying to save money? Are we trying to spend money? Are we trying to grow money? Do we want more accounts? I mean, Of course, every business wants more new customers and they want all these things, but various stages of a business, they might be focused more on conversion of new accounts or adding number of new users than they would be increasing the average order value or whatever those business needs are. I think, yeah, yeah, a couple of other things I would add is when you're looking at your tools and all of that, there's a couple of things that come out of that. One is I think it's important to understand is your tool doing everything it can? Are they canceling too many good orders? How well do we know that this number of orders that the fraud tool is canceling are actually bad orders and not just good orders that look risky? And I think that's a hard question. It's a very (laughs) hard question, but it's a possible question to answer in a few different ways. But you can have a senior, you can go the manual route and have a senior analyst dig in, look at those. You can ask customer service to track anytime somebody says, you know, why is my order canceled? And that doesn't mean that they're a good customer, but looking into that, you can look at retries. If a customer had an order canceled due to fraud, but then they reordered and it went through and there's different ways you can measure false positives, right? But that's one thing I think another point to educate leadership on that I find myself educating a lot of non-fraud familiar or just executives that don't understand fraud is that not every tool is the same. And there are unfortunately some legacy tools and even some newer tools that are going to have a different philosophy for different reasons, depending on a lot of factors, depending on how it works. You know, and I think I'm talking more about like the four risk engines and, and transaction mm-hmm. analysis, but sometimes it's just a matter of retooling that. And, you know, if you have a rules system, really looking at every rule, is there a really random rule that was put in place for a fraud trend that somebody saw five years ago and now it's stopping all of these good yeah, orders yeah. because... That's not risky anymore. You could really work with your current provider to say, hey, I have a directive to increase my you know, approval rate by X. How do we do that? Or you look externally and add layers or do a POC or now there's even technology to allow you to test out newer providers very quickly and be able to know, you know, if they're good or not very quickly without adding any code or implementation. So that's really promising. But there's different ways there. So those are some of the things to consider. Yeah. I, so one of the things that you had brought up earlier was how do you check for false positives? 
I had the luxury of a larger team and we had multiple shifts, 24 hours a day, multiple facilities. So we had the ability, I think we, at the largest, the entire team was like 70 some people at StubHub and that included product people and data scientists and all kinds of other stuff. But on the upside, which is the majority of the folks around the team, we actually reviewed every decline. We actually put someone eyes on every decline and we called wherever we could. We'd reach mm-hmm. out and try and reach out to the card holder on file or the card, the owner of the card or the, the person whose name was used on the order and verify. Mm-hmm. Did you try this? Did, is this a legitimate transaction? Those sort of things. Then and not cases, just listening to what they say, but how they say it. And even if they answer the phone, right? That's also a clue or if the phone number works. <laughs> yeah, multiple levels, actually. What we did was we would very quickly clear a false positive proactively. We would immediately refund that transaction and then we would instruct the cardholder to call the bank and get the card changed out because their numbers have been compromised and used for fraud. So Mm -hmm. we were cleaning up our chargeback issue. We were creating a positive experience in the mind of the consumer whose card was stolen because usually they're like, oh, you were hacked. My Mm -hmm. my card was hacked on StubHub. No, no, no. That never happened while I was there. (laughs) That's true. Um, And it's good for your brand too. You're explaining, no, it looks like somebody just came to our website. They got your card somewhere else. They had your card number else. Yes. Exactly. And so we could proactively manage that so they didn't get it on the bill, right? We Mm -hmm. caught them before their bank figured it out and called them. Yeah. Because we know on card not present transactions, they don't exactly, yeah. They're not on top of that. Not their money, right? It's scale, right? They don't have a lot of people looking at these transactions. As fraud practitioners, we tend to apply a negative connotation. The reason why this happens is because somebody (laughs) doesn't like me or somebody, you know, is trying to do the wrong. Yeah, the banks are against me. There are just so many transactions. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 I will say with what that's a really good point kind of counteract that I did see a very big difference in how issuing banks handled card not present abnormalities in their oh, yeah. customer yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in their customer flows pre 2008 and post 2009. Um, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, no, I not that I'm trying to say just saying I do know that, like you know it used to be oh yeah my bank called me and then it was like oh those departments don't exist anymore and. Right. And again, it's a business decision on the bank side, right? Is this our liability? Is this our money? No. Okay. We need to cut some teams. So that I, that's where I come from that. Not totally, totally. Too often it's easy on the merchant side to be the victim because we have a lot of reasons to be, but it's totally, not totally. always about us. Sometimes right. it is just scaling and not having the abilities. But yeah, I... Going back to what you guys did, I, did you do that all the time or was that for as a test? That was ever, forever. Wow. <laughs> we started doing it. It was successful. We kept doing it. And it became part of our metrics, right? Mm-hmm. So as we talk about metrics, we look at our chargeback ratios went way down because we were proactively getting those things refunded before we ever captured the funds right. in some case. And so getting those cards canceled meant that if you use them on StubHub, you got a new card and use it on stuff of the chances of you using it for mm. fraud, getting a transaction through and then being able to use it anywhere else. Right. Was lower. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> they can't, the cards get canceled quicker. So, right. I mean, if anybody's mm. listened to any of the other, any of the other episodes that I've done with you here, we talk about incentivizing them not to attack you, right? That's the theme that comes up over and over. Mm-hmm. And here's a good one because we were stopping, we were trying to create a good positive experience in the mind of the consumer. We were trying to get the credit cards shut down as quickly as possible. We were trying to offset any potential false positives in the system. The offshoot of that, the side effect was the cards became invalid faster. And mm-hmm. so 
used it here, probably wouldn't be used somewhere else. So do you really want to do that? So I, the idea here is that right, because they wouldn't putting just friction use and pressure the, on them. Right. Because yeah. they wouldn't just use the card at Subhub. They would use it at Subhub and then go on and make so many more purchases until that card didn't work anymore. Yep. If you guys yep. called them, called the cardholder, notified them as soon as possible that their card yeah. was being stolen first. If they said, no, I didn't make that card. Okay, this is what right. you need to do. And it gives that customer a good or the victim a good mm -hmm. experience of Subhub and they're not posting all over social media that somebody was hacked or this or that, whatever. And I see your point, you're canceling those cards. So basically bad actors learn if we use it at Subhub first, we're not gonna be able to use it anywhere yeah. else for much yeah. longer. And, huh. and that actually gave us the opportunity to create that positive experience in the consumer's mind who'd never dealt with the company before. That's what I was thinking. And those of, converted. Yeah. Those yeah. converted. We huh. would see those customers come back and they're like, we felt so safe when you when you proactively mm. reached out to us when we weren't doing business with you, that when we were looking for tickets, we actually called you. Because what yeah. we do is we flag those identities in our system as potentially suspicious. Right. And they would then kick an order out. And so we could, we would see that in review and we would reach out to the customer again and have a conversation with them. Sometimes the same analyst would call them again. It was kind of funny. <laughs> and you actually drove her, that was a new sale. That yeah. was a new sale that happened because of a fraud protection process. Now, I mean, it wasn't like millions and millions of dollars every year, but it was still adding value to the bottom mm -hmm. line. It was creating a sale where one may not have existed before. Wow. And yeah, so that, that was kind of a cool side benefit. I do uh, love but, that. And I did something similar when I started the research for the Friendly Fraud Project at Expedia, where I'd call, mm -hmm. but often, but at that point, I was calling them after they issued a chargeback, but it right. still was putting some of those pieces together that you really can't without contacting the cardholder. But I'd learn a lot and go, huh, so you actually just called your bank to ask them what you purchased. You didn't tell them it was fraud. Okay, interesting. Picking mm -hmm. up on those little things or well, so-and-so said I could do, you know, oh, okay, well, what? Just finding those little things. I absolutely love that, but I feel like there's a lot of people that are like, that's not going to scale or that's not. But I would say it didn't that would always be scale. A really good test for a week yeah. or two. Yeah. So here's the thing, right? We did our best effort. If we couldn't get to the order, the order just went through. We'd given ourselves a certain amount of time to make a decision because, you know, you had tickets that needed to transact from one, right. one person to another. Especially so if the event gave, was that same day or, yeah. Yeah, same. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, was, there were variable numbers in there that were, of course... And depending on what the staffing was like, was it during the day? Was it at night? So many different things that went into whether to get to every transaction. And we didn't get to everyone. Right. If they timed out, there was logic that either declined the transaction and canceled it or just auto approved it, depending on where it lived in the system. And so it was best effort. If we couldn't get to them, we didn't. And we didn't hold up the process in the event that we couldn't keep up with it. Now, okay, what that yeah. meant is that we had to understand what the productivity of an individual analyst was mm -hmm. in aggregate. And to be able to use that information to project how many people we'd need on for any given sort of time of day. And so we looked at things like, were we going into World Series? You've been on the or banking side a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's been, World this has Series. Been like eight World years. Series. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Gosh, my hair is getting grayer by the day. We're both old. Um, you and I both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're going into World Series game and it's game, say, it's the clinching game, whoever wins this wins, the on sale from game six to game seven happens 
the night before. And right. so when you knew something like it was going to happen or was a possibility, you staffed up so you could handle that rush of transactions. You might elongate the window a little bit so that you didn't necessarily time a bunch of those transactions out, but you did your best. And sometimes we'd have to drop some of those things just to scale with the right. you know business. And we would we'd accept some more transaction chargebacks during that time. We'd accept more customer service calls that we'd then have to follow up at a later date to clear a potentially false decline, you basically drop the actions in your process that are least impactful to the bottom line when the volumes go up. And yes. so understanding where in the business life cycle you are I and mean, where the parties are, if loss is the biggest thing, you got to cancel as many orders as possible. Right. The biggest thing, you've got to balance allowing transactions through with a loss versus interrupting good transactions. And so that balance is going to change throughout the ebbs and flows of your business, depending on the needs of the business at the time. So as you were talking about knowing the needs of the business, the priorities of the business, that should be driving the set of your priorities within your teams. So if customer experience is the end-all be-all ethos of your brand, you definitely don't want to be canceling too many orders. But as you have a conversation with your senior executives about we're going to allow more transactions to get through in order to protect the customer experience. That's going to mean more loss, right? right. And it, yes. again, getting back to that top line, number of good transactions, average price, number of bad transactions, average price, number of stopped bad transactions, average price. You can start to do some interesting math off of these numbers and say, if we do this, if we allow more transactions mm-hmm. through, the loss impact will be X. For every 100 transactions we let through, 100 times the average transaction value, we'll probably see an additional increase in X dollars of loss per per day, month, year, whatever. But in, in, anyway, so this is the business case we're looking for is explaining to executives mm-hmm. what the actual dollar values would be of making these changes. Now, right. sometimes you don't know what making that change is going to be. That was actually the next thing I was going to say. That was literally what I just wrote down was, what if you can't quantify the ROI or if it's really hard and not something And you that, know it's wrong. Don't do this. No, don't do this. Don't oh do this. Oh my gosh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and there's a few different things, right? Because there's quantifying the ROI when you want new technology. And that yeah. can be really hard. I mean, a POC can help with that. Sometimes a POC can take five, six months into the conversation with a potential vendor and then you can do a POC. Well, then at that point, there's so much time and meetings and everything that's gone up by and everything else. But at the same time, like that can be one thing, but there are losses beyond things that result in chargebacks, mm-hmm. especially over the last several years, especially oh, yeah. when you have first party fraud, you have refund fraud, you have broke code abuse, you have referral and in promo code abuse, I kind of put loyalty and referrals and is it all the, well, no, ATOs are separate, but all those different pieces that an account takeover may not result in any monetary loss and a chargeback. But if you have user generated content, it could result in a lot of spam and a lot of issues. It could cause just flutter out, right? So kind of knowing what those costs are and how to make them monetize as much as possible is helpful. That's where trying to communicate our intuition can be really challenging because it's, I know if I add this extra layer, it's going to help. Do I know how much? No. I struggle with this in my consultancy. I always yeah. go conservative. Yeah. You know, how much can you save us in chargebacks? You know, how much can you recover as well as prevent? I mean, I can look at the data and have a pretty good guess. I always strive for five to 10 X ROI as well when I'm pricing mm-hmm. things. So that's yeah, challenging. Yeah. But so far, I mean, knock on wood, but like every time I've blown my, what I thought the ROI would be out of the water. However, it's a crapshoot. I'm trusting my intuition because I've done this before for other companies, but 
every company's different. And so that can be a really big challenge too, whether it's, hey, I know this is going to help or I know we have this problem. Here's the closest way I can quantify it and this and that, whatever. And then the other side is the business comes to you and says, we're going to do X, we're going to do Y, not even work asking you just this is what's going to happen <laughs> and you're trying to figure out no it's going to cost us money but I don't know how much it's so a what are your suggestions on that I mean I usually just say do your very best but maybe I'm feeling you've been able to get an example yeah. <laughs> get an example exactly so many years ago I may not have a hundred percent of the details in memory because this is this goes back a bit this example I'll bring up because I learned something from it that I didn't know before and that informed some of the decisions I made later mm-hmm. in my career in, in that organization so at one point someone in the business might have been product I'm having a vision of a head of product saying we want to drop CVV because we think that it's going to cause you know see adding CVV means they have to pull the card out of their pocket and that means that they may not transact Okay. Right. right. So at the checkout page, adding the last three digits to the back of the card, or if it's Amex or in the front, it's just one extra step. And we think that people might be giving up, even if that's the concert they wanted to go of their dreams. If they had to go get their wallet and take out and put those three numbers, they're giving up. So we think this is costing sales. Yeah. My intuition is saying, no, (laughs) don't do it. (laughs) And this is a very familiar thing to a lot of people on the merchant side. This question has been brought up in many different forms. I mean, since the beginning of the internet. (laughs) Totally, totally. Right. More data equals fewer conversions. Uh, Not necessarily. Yeah. Not to get ahead of myself here. That didn't turn out to be. (laughs) So what we did after a spirited debate, we'll leave it at that. We agreed to A-B test it, okay? So we have two experiences for our customers and we were randomly assigning which experience based upon chance. There was no pre-decision as to who was going to be who, but once you're into the group, you were into that group, you would continue to be in that group until you transacted. So in one group, we continued to ask for CVV, okay? In the other group, we omitted CBB, did not request it, did not send it along in our authorization request. Keep note of that last bit. This is one of the things where I want to have people with their hands up and I'm sorry we can't do that. <laughs> so, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. But what um, did you think? What did you think that the, what yeah. was your hypothesis? Because I, I so, actually remember this clear as day from when yeah, yeah, all yeah. this happened because you like what you learned out of it. I learned something too and I've shared it with many right. people in conversations. So what was your hypothesis because i think it was similar to what a lot of us would say yeah so my hypothesis was there wouldn't be a significant difference between cvv and non-cvv for conversion but there would be a massive difference in fraud (laughs) right so i expected that in cvv that the fraud rates would be the same as any of the rest of our fraud rates because we were asking for cvv at the time right and i expected that this non-cvv process would have a higher fraud rate. And I think it's good to note that one of the reasons why you would have that hypothesis is because, especially back then, but even still, it's important to know what our fraudsters buying, what's available yes. to them from data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And card numbers and expiration dates are easy to get for various reasons. And cheaper. And cheaper, yes. Yeah. Because that's what's in the data stream oftentimes for card present transactions. And so that's what's pulled. I just mentioned it on Thursday's podcast where the Home Depot and Target breach, the ones that we all remember, didn't happen online. These were card present transactions because they don't have the same 
protections and securities around full card numbers that we do on the online side. But speaking with customers that are victims, how many times did you hear, well, I never used the internet, so I don't know how my card got stolen. Oh, someone else did though. Someone (laughs) used it in person and someone siphoned it off. Right, right. But they're like, how would my card get stolen? I didn't use the internet. And it's that actually isn't where the cards come. It's like needing to know the full process of like, where does the data come all the way to how is it monetized? But yes, so... That would be exactly my hypothesis as well, that without mm-hmm. asking for CVV, it would get out. I don't know about on the A-B test as much as if you rolled it out in production, but still yeah. it, there'd be more fraud. So what was the outcome and how <laughs> did you how did you deliver it? How did you yeah. communicate it? So we had a data analyst look at all the data and the intuition was correct. The fraud analyst intuition was correct. The fraud rates were much higher than non-V than the CVV. Now, when we say much higher, statistically significant, right? It's not like 50% higher or 100% right. higher. There was a difference that was measurable. And when you extrapolate that to the entire population, it would have resulted in more transactions, especially when you take into account that a fraudster starts to notice those transactions mm-hmm. are making it through and they'll start hitting it even more. So opportunistically, we saw that number was higher. And you were able to then say, and if this many number of transactions happened for every this, then that's going to cost us this because we know how much our AOV is for bad transactions and all that because we've done the baseline. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what we didn't expect was that. And what about conversion? That that stayed the same as well, right? Or. Are we getting there? Are you sorry. taking this? You're taking the wind out of my sail here. Sorry, we sorry, sorry. Good enough. It. <laughs> I'm kidding. kidding. I, thought so, I, was, so, I thought you were so we expecting that. <laughs> no, not way ahead at all. What we didn't expect <laughs> was that the bank was declining more transactions that didn't have CVV mm. because they know the risk here. And so <laughs> we had a drop in conversion in the non CVV process that are the AB test that no one expected. Well, and it and, wasn't so much conversion, right? Because the customer was finishing the transaction. Mm-hmm. It was between when the customer checked out and when the fraud team looked at it, the bank was canceling those transactions. So you had to drop Yeah, but for in. the test, it didn't matter. Yeah. Oh, so, so it, okay, okay. They entered the flow. They didn't complete the flow. Okay, got it. Right? Because the transaction, they couldn't charge oh, the credit okay. card. So there was no, it would be the same as if there's no balance available in the card or the card was invalid or any yeah, number yeah, of yeah. reasons. Yeah, that I just know some cleaning. companies calculate conversion as what's in yeah, the customer's yeah. oh, control, like up to yeah. checkout where they press the checkout button. And That's then calculate what the bank says for authorization and decline mm-hmm. rates, which is so yeah. important for anyone to know whether you're fraud or payments. But we're going to have another buddy from that time of mine join me soon to talk more about like payments and stuff and why it's yeah. important for people fraud to know. But so you were looking at, so the bank, so then what was the outcome that the, it, right? we were at okay. the time we were measuring conversion of whether or not they completed the checkout okay. process successfully, Got because it. we the, were trying to gauge whether or not CVV kept them from completing the checkout process. And so, uh, apples for apples, so you actually were able to show that there was more conversion when they entered the CVV, CVV. than when we they went, didn't. I mean, we didn't know why. When we first yeah. did the analysis, we just recognized I that. I think that's when you called CVV me. CVV was converting. <laughs> like, why would CVV increase conversion? Yes. Like, it was completely, like, not at all what it expected. And so when we actually dug into the data, we saw that they were actually completing the order. Mm-hmm. They just weren't converting because the banks were declining them yes. for a miscellaneous reason code. And we, at that point, went, ah. Oh, so he called up a friendly bank at the time, said, why are you actually declining these? And they said, yeah. oh, because they look like high risk fraud. 
because there's no CVV involved. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> you just, <laughs> you just wrote my business like, case for yes. me. Yeah. So, so I mean, but, but the whole time I had been pushing the fraud rates are going to be higher. We never thought about mm-hmm. a conversion loss with no CVV for any no. other reason. So I had to explain that. So we had yeah. to sit down and actually run the numbers and figure out that, okay, these were lost because the bank didn't feel safe enough without CVV. We killed it. We killed yeah. it on the spot because we could say, if we take this away, conversion will suffer, fraud rates will go up and customers will be very unhappy because their credit cards have been declined and they yeah. don't know why. Because they work everywhere else except for here. Exactly <laughs> right. Oh my gosh, yes. So the business case became easy to put together once we actually understood mm-hmm. what the change would entail, what it would impact, because you had the business person that was saying more data equals lower conversion. And we were saying less, less data, data equals higher fraud. Right. And, and what ended up happening was less data equal lower conversion. We were both wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in the right I, direction. <laughs> yeah. You were half right. Right. Yeah, because yeah, the fraud right. did increase and it would have increased even more as the fraud got out and you were doing it on all transactions. It was in production, et cetera. Right. I love that example. And there's been several times in the last few years where, you know, I've been asked by very large merchants, oh, somebody in the business wants to take away CVV. Like, yeah. well, and the reason why it's so, why that one is so vulnerable, I guess, in a way, is because, especially if you're physical goods, you need a shipping address, right? And people understand to a certain extent, depending on if they have a payments department or not, that if you include AVS, whether it's the full street and zip or just the zip, that you qualify for better pricing for your processing. It's not a ton, but it adds every penny and every percentage adds up when we're talking about these giant brands adds up very quickly. And then on top of that, then they'll say, if entering CVV isn't required, why do we have to ask for it? And it is helpful in chargebacks. It won't have that much of a difference post April of 2023, but nothing. I'm just going to keep mentioning that because it's driving me crazy. But the new visa rules are very challenging for chargebacks. <laughs> the, the only constant is change and frustration. Yeah, change and frustration. <laughs> yes. Can you ask those of us that understand what impact would be first, please? But anyway, I digress. But CVV, we'd often say well, we'll be able to win more chargebacks, but not necessarily. And so this is one of those things that you didn't know and you wanted to say you're in you just wanted to say no. And that's what we all want to do. But instead of saying no, you kind of took a step back and were like, I need to pick my battles and I'll let the data speak for me. And then that will help enforce my credibility. And yeah. so that the next time I have intuition, I mean, I need to do an A-B test because they'll be like, oh, there's probably some hidden thing, you know, that I don't know about that Robert's intuition is zeroing in on or the fraud leader. I just didn't know to think about that thing. No one. Did. No, of course not. I didn't either. I think you did call me like when you found that out and you were like, have you ever heard of this happening? And I hadn't, but I was like, it makes perfect sense because Banks don't get a lot of information about the cardholder in the authorization string. They just yeah. get the card number, the expiration date, the address. That could be the same street number, but a different street or the same house number, but a different street or same zip or whatever. So that's not even that reliable. And that's the billing, not the shipping, right? And then on top of that, then they get the CV. So that's all they get if you're not using 3D Secure or 3D Secure or mm-hmm. 2.0. So yeah. that's it. And I didn't know that either, but I... Wish I could tell you, and I could tell you when we aren't recording, how many very large companies have asked me about that since then and how many- You don't need to tell me. I've been in the room with enough business people, product people. And you know who I, yeah, you know who I know too. But like, 
at the it same time. It doesn't actually like, matter who. Well, I mean, any product person is going to try and create a more streamlined, straightforward, 100%. easy to use process. Yeah. And Right. And yeah. And sometimes we do have to sacrifice, right? Like sometimes Mm -hmm. we do have to say, I really want that, but do I need it? Do I not? Because the more oftentimes you just say no, the less they'll come to you. That's, Mm -hmm. I learned that lesson. It's not that they're going to say, oh, okay, I trust you. We'll stop doing that. No, there might be bigger business needs. And if they, if you don't communicate it well as to what's going to happen, if we don't do it, what's going to happen if we do it? If you don't use the data in that way, then they're just going to, you're right. It all comes down to intuition and being able to communicate that. I haven't really ever put my finger on that, but that's, I don't know. My mind is blown as you can tell when talking with you, but no, I mean, just legitimately. And I can say, I think I've shared the story before, but just very quickly, when I ran the fraud department at the startup bag borrower steal a handbag and accessory rental company. God, that was so long ago. So <laughs> long. I was a baby, I know. But like I, you know, I'd never run a team. I'd never run the merchant side. It came from the payment processor side. I mean, none of us, we all were figuring it out, but I had a lot of hypothesis. And at the time when I started, there was so much fraud. They let me do whatever I wanted, right? It was mm-hmm. just like, yeah, fix it. Okay. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you, benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. But then as we got that under control, then there started to be other issues with funding and other stuff where they were like, no, we need every sale possible. And the CMO called me the chief sales prevention officer and got business cards printed up. And that was nice. I just held a finger up in the air. You can guess which one. But yeah, it was very dysfunctional, but lots of like core, like fundamental life lessons learned in that role. Not all pertaining to fraud. Sometimes just, wow. But in this case, there got to a point where they felt like we were, my team was canceling too many orders. Yeah. And I didn't think we were because I felt very good in our processes. But admittedly, 
there wasn't conversations about false positives at every single conference. That wasn't where we were as an industry. We were yeah. really just focused on stopping as many transactions. So I hadn't really done that thought exercise before. And the ask was that I needed to cut declines in half. And I'm like, you can't just pick an arbitrary number like that. But on the flip side, my chargeback numbers were super low. We had gone from being above 1% to two or three basis points. So like 0.2, 0.3%. So as much as I prided myself on those low chargeback numbers, I was you like, them up, didn't you? <laughs> I was like, all right, I know I have to give a little bit. So what we came up with was a compromise and I thought for sure I knew what the outcome would be. And that compromise was since I had worked with our engineering team to build a homegrown fraud prevention system because we had a very funky business model and there were yeah. only really two companies around and one of them was brand new. It was the one you guys were talking to at the time. So they really, yeah, they were brand new. So there wasn't anything. And so because of that, we could create some modifications and we asked development if they'd be able to put in something that said accept and watch. And as I communicated to my team, that was the CYA button. That was the, I know in my gut, but I can't confirm it. I can't get a hold of the card holder. I can't confirm that this is fraud. It just feels risky. And the truth is we had a lot of people that wanted to rent Louis Vuittons and Chanel handbags that didn't have the best zip code or didn't have a ton of money or whatever. Gotta know and your so, customer in that respect. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, we yeah. knew different personas of our customers and we did have to pull credit over a certain amount because we were lending mm -hmm. items, not money, but still. A significant value also, in some cases. <laughs> right. It was at the height of its popularity at the time. So yeah, it was like renting out or giving out money and lending money. And a lot of crazy stories about celebrities and all kinds of stuff, that process, but that's like a whole other podcast. But what I learned through that process, so it was pretty manual. At the end of every month, I would get a list of the ones that were in accept and watch and I would go see if chargeback had come up or not. I mean, now you can build the technology easy to go do that. But back then, not so much. So I was surprised that honestly, like less than 30% of the orders that we did accept and watch turned into chargeback. And I was able to say, okay, I'm going to eat some humble pie because <laughs> clearly these are ones we would have canceled before. And then we also watched to see if they went into collections. And so I do think the other tip I could give, and I think you're sure you would agree with me is pick your battles and be willing to compromise. You can't just say no. That's my biggest thing. I That's the biggest mistake I see so many people do. And then at some point later on, they say, how can I get the business to listen to me? Or they're putting all of these marketing emails and I don't even get a say and I just find out about it later. Or they added this stupid thing that I know is going to cause fraud, but now I wasn't even in the room. And so now I can't right. do anything. Like, would you agree with that though? Kind of having those hills you're going to die on. For me, yeah. it was when the CMO said, we're going to sell our customers' credit card numbers to this magazine clearinghouse. And they're just going to send subscriptions of magazines to our customers. And they're not totally going to know it came from us or not, but we're going to get a kickback. That was a hill I was going to die on till the day. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but on, yeah. you know, hey... Is there any wiggle room in the orders that you're canceling? Let's see. And then I remember having this huge caveat of just so you know, if my chargeback rate goes higher, this is why. Because I guarded that thing with my life. I was so proud yeah, of it. Yeah. I mean, I so reduced I them by like 98%. I was like, come on now. But at the same time, I reduced it too much. So yeah, I, knowing I, those I would, lines and being flexible is important. Totally. 
I would add a third thing, right? Mm-hmm. So after pick your pick the hill you want to die on, except you may be wrong. Yes. And I'm going to caveat this one. It's not, how do I put this the correct way? It's not uncommon. You don't have all the pieces in front of you. It's not uncommon. There's a piece of the business you don't understand as well as you think you do. This is where experience comes in, right? It's picking your battles is an experience thing. But 100%. accepting you may be wrong mm-hmm. is like experience 401. Mm. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's advanced experience. Your gut's telling you something, but your gut's telling you something based on the data in front of you. A lot more experience in this, you're going to recognize and you're going to ask yourself, okay, given what I know, this is how I feel. I'm probably right based on that assumption. What don't I know? What mm-hmm. inputs to this problem do I not know at this point? What inputs these potential changes do I not know at this point? And ferreting out where those data points are is actually where experience comes to play for someone in this business. Because it's not just, no, we can't do that because of X. It's knowing that maybe there might be some things that would change my mind and going out and looking for them proactively. That's the hard part. It's not only having your mind open, but knowing that there may be some data points that you need in order to make a better decision and going to do it at that point. Yeah. And that can be hard, right? Because data is often siloed in different departments, but that's where building those cross-functional, those relationships with cross-functional teams is so critical. And ensuring that they know that you're not trying to go into their turf or their territory, but hey, I'm trying to figure this out, you know, and it'd be really helpful for me to know how many customers have called in about this problem. What are the other data points, right? Like how many people call in and say that they couldn't complete their transaction because of X or whatever that thing is, knowing where it is. I've gotten really good over the years and it 100% from experience, knowing that if I work with a client and we do X, right, we'll get charged back reduction, right? We're going to do root cause analysis. I can be pretty good at going, okay, here are all the ways that it's going to impact your business. It's not just going to work in charge back. It's going to decrease the number of calls you have coming in because if we fix why customers are calling their bank and saying, what did I buy here? Or that didn't happen or that instead of calling us, then And if we fix that overall problem, whether it's I ordered the sweater and it was red on the website and it was orange when I got it and you've got every customer either calling their bank or calling the call center and you fix that description on the website, now you're going to have less people calling in your call center and less chargebacks, right? So I try to pull in any kind of impact that it's going to have on other parts of the business. Refund fraud. I'm working on a, a refund fraud product. And one of the selling points, one of the value propositions is you're going to have a whole heck of a lot less customers calling you and saying the product didn't arrive and this didn't happen because there's going to be a central hub where they go to take care of that. That's a huge win. And then you can ask customer service, hey, how much do you assign to every call? Like how much is that? How expensive is that for you guys? Because they should know that metric in order to justify their headcount. Business case building. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so I wanted to just kind of the last point I wanted to circle back and talk about before we end this conversation, because I'm always like, oh my gosh, almost an hour has gone by and it feels like 10 minutes. Poor editor. (laughs) Uh, My editor is amazing and we're grateful for Ivan. But yes, and we do know that once he cuts out all of my um, and thinking that episode gets shorter. But no, we, we naturally sound like this. <laughs> <laughs> if only I could carry Ivan around all the time and make me sound so good. That would be really funny. Actually, I just got a really funny mental image of me walking around the conference with an editor. Hang on. Anyway, 
Speaking of getting distracted, last thing I kind of wanted to ask you, and this very much ties in with it, is a question that came up on my retailer call last week. And this has come up many times whenever I facilitate a call with all merchants in different ways. There are a few merchants who are way more focused on this than others and that have easier times and harder times, et cetera. But this is something where like you, somebody asks the question and you just hear like this collective groan. And that is what they said exactly on the call was that, They said, I'm worried that we don't pay members of our fraud team well enough, but HR sets the pay bands for every department. How are you guys working with HR to increase the pay scale for the fraud team? And this has been, I think, like another problem since the beginning of time. I know you had some of these battles back in the Mm day. I've had some of these battles. We both talked to friends that are on merchant sides. And some of the problems are that oftentimes fraud teams stem out of customer service departments, or that's like the closest thing they can kind of put them in a bucket for. So they'll just kind of yeah. sit them in customer service band. But you need a lot more skills and both soft skills that just are natural and personality traits and things like that, as well as training and hard skills to be able to be a fraud person that you're much harder to replace and all of that. But it's such a challenge for a lot of reasons. The other issue that's the biggest driver is the fact that we're an emerging industry and there really aren't published standards. I have wanted for the last 10 years since I worked for the Trade Association to do a salary survey, different levels of experience, different levels of title, different geography, et cetera. What has been shot down so many times and I actually turned it around and asked this group of merchants this and they all went, oh, I said, so here's the biggest reason why no one's wanted to do it. The trade association, the publication I worked for, I have been advocating this for years. It's the fact that people are worried, will anyone fill it out? Would you be able to fill out all of the salary information for your company? Even if it was anonymous, we'd at least need to know size of company, number of employees, the geolocation we could probably get. Would you be able to do that? And then everyone's face is, oh, you know, you want the data, but you can't participate in collecting it, then that's the conundrum. Now, maybe that would be different, but that's something. But anyway, that's the other issue I know HR has is it's not the same as looking up someone with marketing experience of five years that's a manager or someone with HR experience in recruiting and it's been there for two years or 10 years or is a VP. It's not the same. There's really no published data. So they just kind of stick in with customer service. What do you, yeah, what do you suggest on this or what have you done? So there's no hammer for all of this, right? There's not one size <laughs> no. fits all tool. And there isn't for uh, business case either, right? But we're definitely no, giving no, pointing no. in direction and then hoping that people can kind of tailor it to themselves and business culture, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, we did a lot of recruiting and hiring for fraud folk in the call centers. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that wasn't palatable within the organization was to put out a posting for a job that was going to pay more than the call center staff when mm-hmm. we were already getting paid. So what we did is... But yeah, you're training them to have more skills, right? Training equals promotability. Uh, right. <laughs> Sorry, say so that again. Training equals what? Promotability. So promotability. You, yeah, mm-hmm. if you've trained them for a new job, you've trained, trained them with more skills, they're now a more marketable organ, individual than when they came onto the team. So I'm not going to go too terribly much into what we did. What I promote is, or what I think I could do is add some things you could do in a similar situation, because again, this was years ago. If you're going to bring somebody over from customer service into fraud, you're bringing them into a fraud position at an entry level. So 
matching their pay isn't actually too difficult. Mm-mm. So, so and actually, it might be a good thing. So you're not incentivizing people to come to the fraud team that really don't belong there. Mm. And so if you bring someone over at a certain level, keep their level when they come into the fraud team until they amass a skill set that would allow them to move into a different pay band. Mm. Right? Now you're mm-hmm. not, you're actually setting up with the HR team that there is a difference in skill set between these organizations. Interesting. You're now saying, I will take someone from that team in their current pay band, we'll put them into an entry level position so they don't lose money, but they're not going to gain anything coming across the table. We're then going to start training them. And when they reach certain qualifications, objective qualifications, they're subject to potential promotion. So how many transactions they're handling in a shift? How many good decisions are they making versus bad ones? If you got productivity measures in some way, shape or form, how do they measure up against someone who is, say, the next step up on the pay scale. That gives you, that starts to stratify your organization in ways that you can now justify mm. differences in pay, right? And I think you've got to, you got to put a line in the sand and say that these skills cost X more than a customer service role would take on. And um, well, and you can compare, right? Again, you can go back to the customer service manager, hoping you have good relationship yeah. and just say, yeah, yeah. how much do you, you know, assign to each Customer service agent, right? What's their value? And mm-hmm. it's kind of icky, but every employee has a number over their head of how much value they bring to a company. Some are more quantifiable than others, but you can compare, okay, they were the dollar amount that saving the company or earning the company, et cetera, mm-hmm. in customer service versus, you know, how many bad yeah. sales they're canceling, et cetera. I mean, that's not, they're not exactly apples to apples by far, but just that is one example of being able to show there's a difference because they're mm-hmm. saving the company a lot more money than they did when they were answering phones. And not to say that answering phones does not take skill and knowing the company because I started there. It's just a different skill type. Totally different skill set. And more rare and yeah. harder to find. So therefore it's yeah. I mean, a good fraud person starts off as a good customer service person, right? They're yeah. good with people. They're good at spotting things that need to be looked into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. But there's they understand sort of a focus the whole, yeah, business totally. cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So what I think is important to look at is that when you bring someone from one team to the other, keeping their pay structure is going to be the least offensive. It's probably not the exact word I want to use, but the least yeah, offensive to the people that they're removing them from, right? And isn't mm-hmm. going to cause them to have a pay cut, but also doesn't make your current team who feels like this new person is just beginning, doesn't make mm, them feel bad smart. because they're now bringing people in that are, that are lower. They're going to train up right. to their pay bands. And so it gives you an opportunity to move those people up into the pay bands to grow, to, to expand their skill set and expand their, their earning potential. And to also top. say, ah, oh, you know, we really yeah. thought this person had it. They don't. No harm, no foul. Yeah, it's easy to put them back because they don't have a higher promotion. They don't have higher pay. That's really good advice. I think, you know, there's the other piece of when your team is already intact and Mm -hmm. you're starting to see either attrition because of pay or you are missing or hearing that other companies are paying a lot more. And that is the case because, again, we are in an emerging industry. I have met VPs that make less than a manager at another company, or, I mean, it is all over the board. <laughs> oh, I know you do. I mean, it's crazy, right? So I have a couple examples, but I'd love to hear from you kind of how you, you know, what you suggest there, right? When you have yeah. an existing team and you're like, ah, eh, we're starting to lose them primarily because of money, not 
just other things. There might be other things where they're like opportunity and layoffs, work, life balance. Yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, there's a lot of things that drive people to leave. Yes. Um. So here's the interesting thing. How I expected to pay people then and how I expect to pay people now, a decade later, almost very different. Mm. Again, experience and perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Two things that come up a lot when we talk have given me a different perspective on how people should be compensated and other things. We used hmm. to put people in a call center. We used to put people in a facility where they'd have to process transactions. Post COVID, I don't know that I ever want to put anyone in an office ever again. I don't know if anyone wants to go through an office I mean, ever again. There are, there are benefits to working yeah. together, but the tools now for collaboration are so much different than the tools then. And so it's hard to say what we did then was the best thing. What we did right? then was the best time, the best thing at the time. Yes. I would make different decisions today, given the tools and the, the other data. Now mm -hmm. we'd start talking about what does it cost to, what should we be paying these people? I think that if we actually posted the pay ranges for jobs and we measured mm. the response rate of resumes, mm. we'd be really easy for us to figure out whether or not we're paying people enough. <laughs> you don't a need a survey. Point. The surveys you're posting and publishing your numbers, mm. the, the opaque nature of how we hire, the, the sort of like getting people to Tell you Gosh. everything about them and apply before ever knowing what the pay band is. Is that what getting, you're talking about? Or yeah, getting them to negotiate against themselves, uh, right? By yeah. asking them what they were paid before. And I mean, there's a lot of things that are, are standard practice. Broken, to get the yeah. Cheapest stuff. The least they will accept is not a great policy for getting long-term engaged, focused people on your team. Getting them. I would say to, that about technology too. I have seen many, oh, uh, I and know. I know you have too, right? Many of the, oh God, what's that department, the procurement departments comparing technology just on price, but the performance is oh, so. If you want to negotiate down the same on price, with people, that's a place right? to do it. Yeah, yes. but I mean, for an organization to accept a lower price, that's on them too. But when you have two people in the same role with vastly different incomes, yes. for those same roles and experience, and I have that been one of those right people many times. You and me both, right? Because and, I'm a female. Well, yeah. I mean, not. it's not just because I'm a female, but that definitely took precedent. Persons of I color think, end yes. up getting paid less. Oh my gosh, yes. Others end up getting paid less. There's so many different, like, it isn't and just now one people characterization. In geographic locations yeah. because of the totally, loan. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so, right. I would That's argue really you point. should be paying everybody the same amount in a given role. And like this whole the merit-based pay thing really should be about moving them into a new role versus trying to give them a, you get 5% to this year and you get 3% that year, but you're in the same role. Give people cost of living. We're getting way off topic here, but <laughs> giving people the cost of living increases minimum on an annual basis and then merit-based increases where you actually move into a new role makes a lot of sense. Sometimes there aren't new roles to move into and fraud is one of those, you know, especially yeah. as people get to director and senior director, they're mm -hmm. like, now what? I, there aren't a lot right. of chief fraud officers or chief trust officers that, I mean, actually that's a whole lot. That was a question actually that we were asked, but that's again, can't get to it this time, but maybe one day we'll see that. But again, it goes yeah. down to really telling your business, what's the price of trust? What's the price of fraud? What's the price of when we do this or that? But getting back to the team part, I'll let you finish your thought. Yeah, I just want to finish thought on, on, yeah, on please. the thing. Letting, moving people up doesn't nece not necessarily mean moving them into management positions mm. or anything else. It's just giving pay bans for any sort of specific kinds of deliverables. If you're hitting mm. certain metrics, if you are you're managing a certain aspect of the technology or you're doing something that's objective and measurable, you reach that 
you're subject to the additional pay. And, mm. and I think that leveling that making things objective based versus subjective based, which is the way that most organizations run yeah. their promotions process, which is where mm. you get your raises. But mm. change that whole process, that whole dynamic would go towards making sure the teams are happy and well paid and feeling great about it. You know, yeah. so it starts with posting your jobs with the actual pay rates you're going to be paying someone and seeing hmm. if people apply, you know, you, if you or put what, it out. Or what kind of people, right? Like, are they the qualified people? Because people yeah. will apply no matter what, but are they yeah. people inside the country, outside of the country? Are they experienced or not experienced? Or are they the people you're looking for? I yeah. think that's a good idea. The problem with that in a lot of cases is, you know, HR wants to be able to, they don't want to change that, right? Or the company has a policy not to Average it, whatever. But I would argue that waste the company's time too. I mean, I know yeah. people that have a very high minimum. You get them on the call. I mean, I would argue a couple of them are way too high, not just for their skill <laughs> level, but just in general. But they found one company that would pay them that or whatever, or they yeah. thought that they, whatever it is, that would not waste your company's time either. If it's like, there's no way I would work for that. Now you've just put resources into talking to somebody that isn't a good fit. And now what? And right? we'll never so, join you. And if they do it, it'll be short term. And yeah, yeah, I mean, the outcome of that situation. Yeah. But there's a that's fun... Why, oh, go ahead. Oh, as I say, that's why I argue that measuring your resume submission based mm. upon the post with the price and all those sort of things involved is way more useful than surveying organizations mm. as to what they're paying, right? Because surveying them what they're paying their current staff doesn't mean that they're getting any new resumes for the positions that are opening up. That's true. It doesn't mean that they're that those employees are happy. They might just feel stuck at that price. Mm. So mm. what we're paying now is probably not the best measure as to what folks should be getting paid for the roles involved. Right. And so if you're truly going to be pricing things to market and respecting the market's demands and, and those sort of things, we should actually be measuring the number of resumes we get for the price that we're putting out there for a job. And if, if that job is not garnering resumes, we're not paying enough for it. Right, right. <laughs> we need to or think about that. Or you're requiring them to be in a certain geography because I'm noticing that being a huge yeah. deal breaker too. But, but that means we might need to pay more in that geography. Hey. It, but that's the thing is that we if we get a bunch of resumes resumes in that don't end up converting. It's like getting a whole bunch of transactions in the top of the funnel that the bank ends up canceling. Right? Yeah. It doesn't matter all that effort and we got nothing out of it. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's one like real life example that I want to run past you and then we need to let our listeners get you know, all the things, right? <laughs> we know this every yeah. day. This is why I just love having you on because we can talk forever, but also because I people do say like, wow, hearing you guys talk about stuff makes me think about how we could apply that at our company or other things Good. too. And that's my, that's why I do this. That's why we, I know. <laughs> and you're so generous to me with your time. I'm just always so grateful to you. But there's a real life example. And, and actually, you know the person, but that's neither here nor there, where there are two very similar companies in the same town. And that town doesn't have a ton of people, a ton of other fraud jobs, right? But there's two large companies in the same town that both have fraud teams. They have a little bit of different responsibilities, but for the most part, they're very similar types of companies. They're in the same vertical. They use the same systems. So a lot of things are the same, right? But one of them has chargebacks as an included duty and the other one doesn't. That's really the only difference between the job descriptions. 
one of those companies pays significantly more for analysts than the other one. And what has ended up happening, and I've, and this happens a lot, is the one that doesn't pay as much is the feeder and is training people. And once they get to a certain level, they're like, sweet, now I can qualify to be hired by the company that pays their analysts more. Yeah. And this poor manager who just loves his team so much, and it's not even to him, it's not even about not wanting to replace them. It's it's like, I just, I want them to be happy and I want to take care of them because yeah. they do a lot for us. He is having a hell of a time. He has done so much research, but his HR department says, because they do chargebacks and we don't, then it's a totally different job. This is what it is. And they're like, show us something different because other companies aren't posting how much money they're paying for these positions. Yeah. That fraud manager can't go in. And it has been like a two year battle and they have put so much effort into it. One of the Exit things- Exit interviews are important. Exit interviews, exit are, interviews very are very important. important. Making sure HR is performing that exit interview so and they get they it directly from the horse's it. mouth. <laughs> yeah. Well, right, yes. right. Yeah. That's true. But even though that has happened, it still doesn't, that might be an organization issue. But to your point, like that, sometimes you just can't lead horses to water. I mean, you can lead them all you want, but they're not going to drink. But business might be accepting higher turnover for a lower revenue stream and they're expecting the pay. Well, yeah. right. And they see fraud as a cost center, right? And so totally. all of this is related. Yeah. As you're talking to your leadership and the other de department heads and you are like educating them on the value and the impact of fraud prevention, they're all related, right? But one of the things I said on the retailer call is I said, well, have you ever done just a look at how much it cost to fill the last position. And they're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, how long did the posting stay up? Yeah. How much did they have to pay for all the different places that they posted it? What was the recruiter? Did they use an outside recruiting agency? How many Did you lose anyone else because of the to? extra work workload? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. Yeah, did you lose <laughs> anyone else because everyone else had to carry the load for so long? Yeah. Did you know, how many interviews had to happen? What's the cost of those interviews? How much did you pay every manager to be in those interviews? Start adding that up. And then... Probably the cost of that employee being paid the right amount for a couple of years. <laughs> exactly right, right? Yeah. Okay, so here's the alter, you know, A, each analyst saves the business X annually or, yeah. you know, whatever that is. B, this is how much it's going to cost us to replace them. Oh, and also you need to factor in all the training, right? And all of the time, like of the people who are training them, as well as what you're paying them to be trained, mm -hmm. as well as onboarding, basic onboarding, you know, new laptop, new this, new that, all that stuff. And HR should have a, a cost for just a standard employee coming in. Yeah. And then you can add the fraud specific stuff for training. And then how long until they got that domain expertise so that they were really firing on all cylinders and no one else was picking up any extra slack? That is months. And as long as you can explain it in an objective way, as you yeah. have said, many times and rightfully so that what does it cost if we don't do this if we don't give our analysts another couple percent raise or ten thousand dollars or whatever it is also every company should be factoring in the cost of inflation right now and cost of living but that's also a signed topic just to talk about fraud adding this extra much like extra amount to keep them yeah we can all say that for any company in any position it's cheaper to retain than to have to backfill and have Not to hire not always. Um, that's Sometimes true. bringing in someone green brings in a new perspective. Oh, yeah. Also, you know, it also brings in a lower cost basis for because they're coming in a lower position. There are a lot of reasons why 
rehiring mm. makes sense. Yeah. It just shouldn't be the only tool we have in our tool. Mm. And that's the part, that's the part that really we need to think about and sort of take into account is whether or not this is right to rehire or not, whether a little bit of turnover is good, but a lot of turnover is bad. Why? But here's the one thing I want to point out. Yeah. Just because you have an airtight business case, just because your logic mm. is sound and everybody else agrees with you does not mean the business will. Yeah, that's the right. They might be making different decisions Mm. based on different values and their value. Maybe we don't care if we have high turnover, we'll get new staff, (laughs) we'll train them, we'll do what we got to do. We're doing it now. And in those cases, you as a manager of that team need to think about whether this is the right place for you. Yeah. They may not be respecting your values. And so Mm. it isn't just about you've Mm. tried all you can. There are other organizations that probably value your vision, your training, all the things that you'd normally do. And they might pay you more. Maybe that place across the street. (laughs) I mean, the funny, not funny thing is that other people who you and I have friendships in common, as well as just other people in the industry, when we've talked with that person specifically, like on group calls, that is usually where we end up. Is this really the place you want to be? Because if they're not paying their analysts, they're probably not paying you very well either. And they aren't, but they have dedicated so much of their time and years and life to this company that they don't want to leave. And that is a whole other conversation. It's I mean, scary. Changing jobs is scary. It's a whole bunch of new people. It's like going to, it's like when you were in like grade school and you, oh, yeah. you know, your parents picked you up and moved you to a school. And yeah. You're like, I don't know you anybody. Who do I have lunch the, with? <laughs> well, not only do you not know anyone, you yeah. go, and this was really hard for me the first time yeah. I changed jobs. You go from being the expert at everything where everyone in the company knows, oh, Carice is going to know the answer, right? Like even if it's the funkiest, weirdest thing that has nothing to do with fraud, they're like, oh, I bet you know where to go or whatever. And all the way to, I don't even know where the bathroom is, let alone how to do my job and provide value. And when you're somebody Mm -hmm. who is almost has this impulsion for needing to provide value, and it might even be like to the point where you need to go to therapy for it at some point, that can be really hard too. But I think at the end of the day, it's the other, in addition to change, change is scary. It's, we have so much loyalty for the companies we work for, but The sad thing is, and this is something I had to learn, and I know a lot of people are learning it now, and this brings us full circle to last week's conversation. Your company isn't as loyal to you. And that's a really shitty feeling when you realize that, like the hard way, you know, you kind of have to balance that out, right? Can I impact some change? Can I have some direction, you know, can I have some influence on changing the direction of the culture, at least for my team and the benefits and all that piece? Or do I need to go elsewhere and see what else is there? And maybe I'll realize, wow, I had it really good there. But chances are you probably won't. And you'll learn a few things along the way. Yeah. And I think your team culture and your team satisfaction plays out in your regretted turnover rate. If you can take pay out of the equation, which is usually a big piece of it, people will stick around for a little less money if the culture is good. Yeah. If their satisfaction is high. It doesn't cost a lot to keep satisfaction high. It doesn't cost a lot to make the culture and the environment something that people want to come to. Every, I'm going to think back of this, and I'm sure somebody would call me out on this, but every team that I've led has had low turnover in comparison to other teams at the same organization. You have to listen to people. Mm-hmm. You have to create an environment where they trust that if they come to you with something that's not going to be used against them or yeah. tossed, tossed in their face or gossiped about to other people. Mm-hmm. 
if you and manage create, them different, manage them how they need to the be respect. managed, not just everyone and be respectful. And yeah, yeah you're right. You reminded me of how back at Bag Seal, we had obviously salary freezes and that was really mm-hmm. hard to communicate, especially to the people that worked for us because they didn't make that much and they were single moms and they were hoping for this and they were planning it. I was in a similar situation where I was promised a lot more and then there was a freeze before that could happen. And all of that. So I was the assistant manager to customer service. And then I was the manager of the customer financial services department because they didn't want to say fraud. And we had customer financial services appreciation week, like totally, we just made it up. Right. And I, out of my own money and the customer services out of her money, we'd bring food or we'd have a different theme day every day. And it was so much fun. And some of those things are kitschy and silly and nobody likes them, but some of your team might. And so like finding out what that thing is, maybe it's take Friday afternoons off in the summer. Maybe there are some things within your control. So with that, I think I want to end on the last point you made because I do think it, it is the best one. I mean, it is important that not always will your recommendation, no matter how well-founded your intuition is and your business case is, you might be told no. And then the ball is in your court to decide, is this worth fighting for? Is this something I can't work with or work for? Or I just wait until the I told you so moment. And then I have to go get my mop and clean everything up because sometimes we feel like the cleanup crew. (laughs) Does that feeling of being right make up for all the times you felt crappy about working there? Wow, that's a big question. Does it make up for the experience, (laughs) your everyday experience? I mean, you just have to keep asking yourself. I have this conversation with people personally as well. Have you reached the point where this is no longer acceptable to you? And if the answer is no, then hold on. If the answer is yes, change something, whether that is to go to your management, have a clear conversation about your experiences and stuff. So closing things out, I think that there is, I want to bring up what you just said, because it was so good as far as like, not, you know, you're not always going to get a yes. You're not always, and then you need to decide what you do with that. Right. I mean, is it, whether it's about a specific thing or just the whole entire company cannot understand that there is value in fraud prevention and that you have value to give. Those are Two completely different things, but you need to figure out how how big of an impact this is on you. How does this say more about the culture or is it just a one-time thing? Like you need to kind of understand those things, but accepting the fact that I don't know a single person in this industry that has always gotten a yes, no matter how brilliant their business case is ever. And so understanding that and knowing it's not a reflection on you, but at a certain point, Yes. And I, that also comes with age and wisdom and perspective and time and all wisdom the things and perspective. I'm going to leave age out of the picture. <laughs> Good point. Wisdom and perspective. Yes. It just comes with being around for a while, but I think that's important, right? Because we all just want, we want that yet. We want to be heard, but we also want to be able to impact value. And it's hard to do that when the people who can help you do that don't understand or are saying no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really easy to, you said something that I wanted to key on. It's really easy to feel like you don't have value or you're not adding value in a situation where you're not in the right position or not with the right organization. So let's start this conversation by saying, or start the end of this conversation by saying, you have value in your organization. You have value to other organizations. Whether or not they take advantage of that value is out of your hands. Whether or not you continue to try to provide value to that organization is in your hands. And so when we think about this issue, have you reached the point where the number of no's outweighs the number of yeses? Have you reached the point where 
getting that win, saying I told you so, mm. outweighs the impact of day-to-day operation with that organization. Are you living for that I told you so for spite? Or is that a benefit on top of an already good relationship, good organization? And so don't discount yourself or your contributions, please. Mm. <laughs> like Maybe you're not right for the organization. Maybe they're not right for you. And yeah, that's okay. Just remember. And yeah, sometimes and that's okay. better okay. is down the road, even if you have no idea what that's going to be. I was smiling because I think you have said those exact words to me at least once, if not, not twice in my career. And I know, yeah. and, and it's helpful. And sometimes we need to know that because sometimes as fixers, as people who want to continually problem solve and fix problems, we don't want to stop solving those problems. And sometimes when we care too much about something that frankly, other part of the organization doesn't on a consistent basis, that is demoralizing and devaluing. And we start to feel like, okay, that means that I don't have value. And to your point, no, it means that the company doesn't understand your value or the leadership right now doesn't understand your value or doesn't just isn't the right fit for various reasons. And that can be reflective. Gosh, I thought of the best example of this, but I know it'll add on another 10 minutes. You know, there are definitely situations where, you know, one time they've fought for something and didn't get it. Okay, that's fine. Right. But like how much, you know, knowing where are you at the end of your line? Right. I think that's something that you say to people in your personal life too, right? I can't remember exactly how you word it, but is it still providing value to you or is it still worth the fight? Are you willing to endure this thing still? If not, make a change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if you're willing to endure the situation, if there's still value somewhere in that situation for you and you still are okay with that decision, be there, Mm -hmm. then be there. If Mm -hmm. you're not, change it. You know, just because they don't value what you're providing doesn't mean that what you're providing doesn't have value. It might have value to somebody else. Yeah. And one of my mentors towards the beginning of my career once told me that no one manages your career but yourself. And Mm -hmm. that was something I kind of went, oh, because I think I was expecting somebody in leadership to go, wow, you're doing a really good job. You need a promotion or you need this or that. Or, oh, you should, I think you've reached your limit here. You should look so, if nobody tells you that, you have to make those decisions. Just recognize yeah. the promotion process is broken in most organizations. <laughs> that a lot of them model them after certain consulting organizations with it around the world where they <laughs> not do. Not mine because I'm a little fish. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that much is for <laughs> No, it's great. It's great. No, I'm speaking of the large consulting I know, firms I know you're where, talking you know, about- Oh, they do the rank and yank thing and the bottom 20% put on a pip and get them out the door and get the next one group. But that is not a good management structure. That's management through fear and attrition. Like that is awful. The culture and, of those organizations is awful. Well, yeah. And the culture has a lot to do with your performance and your mental health and yeah, totally. every other part of your career and every other part of your life, I should say, not even your career, every part of your life. And so, yeah, realizing, am I done enduring? Is there something that can change? Can I do something? Something yep. that can change. Can have I tried to change as much as I can? And it's the serenity prayer, right? Can you accept yep. the things you can't change, or do you need to change your circumstances? And I mean, you're in the best position to be able to answer this question, but can you talk to your manager about what's going on? And will there be an opportunity to fix the issue <laughs> if you did? I mean, I, I have seen situations where if the organization truly knew what was going on at a level they understood, it would make a change. Right. And someone sat there thinking, I'm just a little cog and mm. it doesn't matter what I think. It's what the organization wants. And there's an assumption that nothing will change if I don't say something. That's not always the case. It is often that an organization that appears fixed and immovable really isn't. They're just not given the information to make a change. And so before you make that pull the ripcord sort of moment, jump out the airplane, make sure you have a conversation with your manager. 
you know, mm. about the issues. And if they're pretty apathetic about it as well, it might be a good data point for you to <laughs> take into account. Yeah. But at the end of the day, do what you can. And, and when you reach the end of what you think you can do, you have to make a decision whether or not you want to continue to soldier on or if you want to look for something new. And that gut and intuition that makes us amazing at fighting fraud is the same one you need to rely on when you have that voice inside that's saying, this isn't it. I don't know what's next. And that's scary. And that might make me want to say, at least I know what to expect here every day. But why not? Right. What if it does work? What if it is better? I mean, the truth is most people get their biggest pay bumps when they move to another position. And when I was at the trade association, we did some research and a third of the membership every year would change jobs. The average tenure in this industry is two to three years at a company. Yeah. The yeah. way, that's what does it tell you that I do five to 10? <laughs> that was more like a prison sentence. <laughs> you know, I, I know we got to close out. This is so we're getting near the end, but I want to make sure that we're clear. I'm not saying people should be quitting their jobs and looking for other ones. Right. I'm really hoping the people that are employing people are mm. taking a really hard look at their own practices, their own culture, their own methods and saying, am I doing right by the employees I have or am I incentivizing them to leave? And that's the key takeaway I have here. I, mm. I, you know, this isn't telling people who are in positions, hard positions, you should go quit. I will say though, there are a lot of people that are feeling that right now and are just totally. looking for yeah. somebody to say, should I stay? Should I go? And so I think that is good to mention, you know, if you do totally. feel like, and PJ and I talked, you know, more specifically on career paths a couple of weeks ago, you know, in another episode, but I think that is still important. But I also really want to like zone in on your point that for the people who are listening, who are people managers, that is within your control. You do have some control over the experience that the people who report to yeah. you have within the company. Not a hundred percent. You're not paying them out of your pocket or, you know, and the, all those other things. Yeah. But is there, you know, an extra tool you can give them? Is there an extra perk or something like that or an extra track that you can put them in and somebody who really is like growing and pushing? Well, hey, are you interested in learning product? Because there's this opportunity within the company to do this or, hey, we have have a woman's group within our company that's for middle and senior managers. I'd love to see you in that or whatever that is, right? Trying to reward them with what incentivizes them and what keeps them happy because it is a yeah. real pain to have to re, you know, retrain people, especially Agreed. when they're the good people. The people that you need are the ones that will go often yeah. first on their own. Yeah, totally. Oh my goodness, Robert. Obviously I can talk to you forever. Last week's was a little shorter than usual. Today's is a little longer than usual. I guess we learned our lesson last week to schedule a little more time, but thank you so much. I know I want to have you back again. So thank you. And I will, as always, put a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes for people to get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing now or how you can help them or just be connected with you on LinkedIn. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.